Good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Are we good? Why don't you just turn to the person next to you and say, how's your new year going? Well, you can't have that conversation now, so carry on in the cafe afterwards. Very good. Some of you will be like, it's going great. I'm really pleased for you. Some of you will be like, the new year has just hit me in the face, and it's like 2024. If that's you, you're my people. Some of you feel like you kind of limped into 2024. No matter how you've come in, no matter how it's going, we know that we are coming to a God who is able this morning, amen? That we're coming to a God who knows what's coming, amen? And that we're going to come around God's Word together this morning and listen to what He has to say. So let's pray this morning. Jesus, we love you. We honour you. You've got the words of life this morning. And so we attune our ear to what you have to say to us. We um, park up how the year started for us, whether that's good, bad, indifferent, somewhere in the middle. And we come to you, the author and perfecter of our faith. We come to you, the one who knows the future. We come to you, the one who has words to speak to us this morning. And so we quiet our hearts, we discipline our minds to be still, and we come to you and we listen to your words in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So I know for lots of you, it's the start of a new year. You'll be reading through the Bible. Some of you will maybe really started with loads of enthusiasm. And maybe you're kind of at the end of Genesis or somewhere like that. Or maybe you started in the New Testament. And I'm preaching this morning from the beginning of the New Testament. Because I thought, well, lots of you will be starting, you know, reading your Bible and maybe thinking, okay, I'm going to go for it this year. I'm going to read more of my Bible. And you'll have started in Matthew. And so I thought, let's do that. So... In having a little research around the, um, the start of Matthew, I found a really interesting fact. I found that a song was written, uh, a really well-known song, off the first couple of chapters in Matthew. Did you know that? You have been singing it at Christmas time. Did you know that? It's Oh Holy Night. There you go. So up on the screen, we are going to have a look at the words of Oh Holy Night. Here it is. Just because just I really love Christmas and we're bringing it back. Okay, so... Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Saviour's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining until he appeared and the soul felt its worth. If I had a voice like Danielle, I'd now be doing a proper diva rendition for you. But I don't, and I love you, so we're just reading it through. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. This is a big moment. Sing it in your head. Fall on your knees. In your head, everybody. Oh, hear the angel voices. We don't sound like Danielle. Oh, night divine. Oh, night when Christ was born. Now, this is my favorite verse. Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Change shall he break for the slave is our brother and in his name all oppression shall cease. It's particularly pertinent in the world at the minute, hey? Sweet hymns of joy in grateful chorus raise. We let all within us praise his holy name and then we get the big finish. Lovely. Amazing. I want you to think about, have a little mental bingo card in your head now. And I want you to fill in on your mental bingo card what kind of person writes a song like this. The beautiful words that we've just read together. What do you expect of the person who writes a song like that? Somebody who reads their Bible? Somebody who prays? Somebody who has read the Matthew account and is just in awe of Jesus? Could you put some circumstances on that bingo card? Maybe somebody who, as they've been reading, has just been overcome with thankfulness and joy at how amazing it is that God would choose to come to earth as a baby and save us from our sins. 
somebody wanting to express eternal truth through their words. Have you filled in some of those little bingo card parts? Have you got a picture in your mind? Well, spoiler alert, here are the actual circumstances around O Holy Night. We have to go all the way to France in 1843. And a church had just completed an organ renovation, which in those days was the equivalent of them getting an LED screen. So loads of money, really expensive, but like, wow, what an upgrade. It's amazing. They've got this new organ. They're so stoked about it. And the priest of the parish was like so pleased with this upgraded organ that he went to a poet in the town, a guy called Placide Capot. Forgive me if I've just butchered the French language, so beautiful there. And he says to him, can you write me a poem? Because this organ's just so awesome, we need something to commemorate how amazing this organ is. And so Placide Capot reads the biblical accounts, reads the first couple of chapters of Matthew and a little bit of Luke, and he writes... Oh, holy night. And then he asked his friend, Adolf Adam, who was the author of Giselle, the amazing opera. And he says, I've written this great poem. Can you set it to music? And that's the, that's the tune that we sing today, which is why it's endured centuries, because the person who's writing it can write amazing operas. So you've been singing opera all this time without even knowing about it. Congrats to you. Put it on your CV. So... That's a great story, right? You know, organ, he reads it, it's great. And that sounds lovely until you find out that Placide Capo is an atheist. I know. You weren't expecting that, were you? He's an atheist, and worse than that in France, he's a socialist. Boo. At the time in France, that was like not good, really bad. And so the song, because it's so powerful, and the poem and the words, and it's so moving, was being sung across all the churches in France, and it gets loads of popularity, and people love the song. And then the church authorities find out this amazing top 10 hit that they've got going around the churches is written by an atheist, and worse, a socialist atheist, which was like absolute no-no in France. And so they ban the song. They say, nope, no more holy night singing in France. Absolutely not. And so, of course, everybody listens to that. Then they start singing it in all the pubs and the clubs and everything at the time. So that's what happens when you tell people not to do something. And so it gets heard by this guy called John Sullivan Dwight, who was over there from America, because obviously could speak and listen to French. And he loves the song, loves the tune, loves the, loves the, the kind of, the, the thrust of the song, the, the point of the song. And he takes it over to America and he translates it into English, but he adds a third verse because he's an abolitionist. And so he writes the verse, change shall he break for the slave is our brother because that's, he's, he's an abolitionist. He's trying to show America at the time, listen guys, what we're doing is totally wrong and these people are our brothers and you know we shouldn't do this because God's not pleased. And it just bam, takes off in America. And since then, has been up in the top three of Christmas carols of all time. Amazing. Now, I am guessing, when I ask you to fill in your mental bingo card of what kind of a person writes Oh Holy Night, French, socialist, atheist, writing a poem for a new organ was not on your card. Did anybody kind of have that on there? I'm guessing probably not. That wasn't what you were expecting. 
And I wonder what you're experiencing now. Have I just ruined your favorite carol for you? I'm really sorry if I have. When it comes to it at Christmas time, you're like, I can't sing this, written by an atheist. Are you, exper- are you surprised? Is it not what you expected? Is it a little bit left field? Are you intrigued as to how on earth does an atheist write such an enduring, truth-filled words? I'm, I'm intrigued about that. Are you puzzled? Are you confused? Are you maybe even a little bit let down that I've just trashed your favorite carol? The gap between what you anticipated and what you imagined and the reality of how it actually happened in that uncomfortable little gap that we're all now sitting, that's where we're going to park today. Because that's what is happening in the first couple of chapters of Matthew. And it's really hard for us to experience that because it's such familiar scripture. We're going to read a big chunk of it today. And, and it's really hard not just to your brain to click into, oh, I know this story. I know how this goes. Because we've heard it so many times. If you've grown up in church, you'll have heard this ad infinitum. If you're new to church, you'll still have heard this because it, um, it's in songs, it's in carols, it gets read. You'll hear a lot at Christmas Town, And it's hard for us to hear it in the uncomfortable, unexpected, left field, oh my goodness, how did that happen kind of way that it's intended to be written. So that's how we're going to come to the scripture today. Matthew's account is based off eyewitness accounts. He's gone around and listened to people and heard their stories. It it contains real people, real real places that currently exist. It's not a made-up story. So when we hear the word story, we often think fairy tale. It's not that. It's a, it's a biblical account. It's the true account of how something happened. And Matthew's audience is Jewish. And that's really important to us because we have to understand who is Matthew writing to. He's not writing in a vacuum. He's writing to an audience. And so when we understand who he's writing to, that helps us understand why he's saying what he's saying. And his purpose, if we're going to sum up the book of Matthew, so if you're going to read your New Testament this year, you're going to get a little crib sheet there. Matthew's point of him writing his gospel is to say, Jesus is the new Moses. If we were going to sum it up, that's Matthew's big point that he's trying to drive home. You've been waiting for Moses, Jesus is it. You've been waiting for a deliverer, Jesus is the person you're looking for. And he starts off, if you've read Matthew 1, with a genealogy, which I would forgive you if you started off on January the 1st and you were like, right, January the 1st, I'm going to read my Bible more this year. Yes, I am. Okay, where should we start? Not the Old Testament because I don't understand it. Let's start in the New Testament. Let's go easy. Okay, so we're in Matthew 1. Here we go, January 1st, Matthew 1. And it's like... And they were related to this person who was related to this person who begat this person who was that person. And you're like, what? I'll just, I'll skip to chapter two because I've done it. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Begat, begat, begat. Okay, good, flip. And you get into Leviticus and Numbers and you're like, oh, just, just flip, flip, flip. Let's just keep on going. But for the Jewish audience, remember he's writing to a Jewish audience. This was like, whoa, like, Edge of the seat, bam, we're starting with a genealogy. They're like, oh my goodness, strap yourselves in. This is going to be the most exciting thing we have ever read. Which to us were like, no, no, flip the pages. But for them, it's really exciting and it's a common way to start Jewish writing. And what Matthew's doing is he's summing up basically the Old Testament. He's summing up the family history of Israel. And he does that. 
he splits it into six sets of seven. So if you just have a little look, there we go. So he splits the, the entirety of the Jewish family history, which is the Old Testament, into six groups of seven. So Abraham to David, there's seven lots and seven lots of people. Then there's David to the exile, seven lots and seven lots of exile, to Jesus, seven and seven. And he does this nice little sum up at the end. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14. So he's doing a little crib sheet for us, letting us know, okay, 14, 14, 14, six sets of seven. And then, the, oh, just before I carry on there, the point of this is not to do like an ancestry.com. So he's not like, if we were to go back and, and physically count them, of course there's more than 42 generations between Abraham and Jesus. So his point is not, I'm going to give you an exhaustive list of everybody who's lived from Abraham to Jesus. But what he's doing is he's, he's saying, perfection, 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 because it's their family history. David, perfection, 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 perfection. And then he says this, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And so Matthew's saying, we've had all this perfection and then enter stage left, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. So he's going, it's all been perfect. This, this is our family history. It's amazing. And now you need to know about the perfection of all perfections. The seventh seven. The most perfect person who's ever come. And his name is Jesus. Because Matthew's point is, Jesus is the person you've been looking for. So Matthew says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And their readers, Matthew's readers, would have immediately been... Surprised, confused, left field, intrigued, maybe even a little bit let down. Because Matthew's done this, here it's coming, this perfection, and some more perfection, and some more perfection, and now it's Jesus. And they're like, oh, not the person that I was expecting. So, But Matthew's point is to systematically prove through his gospel Jesus is the person you have been waiting for. It's not who you expected. It's not on your Messiah bingo card. You haven't written it down going, Jesus is the person that I'm looking for. But here I'm going to show you, he is the person that you've been looking for all this time. So let's get into the chunk of it. Here's the scripture that we're going to read together. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So Matthew's going, look guys, scripture already told us about this. Here's what we were told. Here's what's happening. And when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. There's a few interesting things in here I just want to pull out before we carry on. First is the character of Joseph. 
We don't know an awful lot about Joseph, but lots of what we know about Joseph is in this little piece of scripture here. Definitely, I just want to put yourself in the shoes of Joseph for a minute, in that you've been betrothed, you're about to get married, it's really exciting, you've got this girl, Mary, so exciting, you're going to get married, it's going to be amazing, and then she comes to you and says, Joseph, interesting news, I am pregnant, not the best day for Joseph, and then he has to listen to Mary say, and, and an angel came, and it's by the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're Joseph, you're not going to be like, wow, Mary, praise be to God. The fulfillment of all the hopes of Israel are found in you today. Because he's a real person, right? He's a real man. He's about to get married to his betrothed, which is as good as married in the Jewish culture. So it, it's, as, it's as good as married, different than our engagement. And then Mary comes and tells him that. Would you not be surprised, confused, upset, a bit left field, maybe a bit more intrigued? I would probably add to that frustrated, hurt, embarrassed, angry even. And it's really interesting that we hear something about the character of Joseph here because Joseph has an unusual reaction to, the, to what he's heard from Mary. And he has the right, as we're going to read in a minute, to stone Mary. That's what he should be doing. And yet we're told that he, he decides not to do that even before the angel comes to him. He he decides that he's going to take another path. But I want you to look just briefly at what Joseph should be doing. We're going to read from Deuteronomy together. It says this. So this is, this is the culture that Joseph's raised up in, and he knows that he should be doing this. If any man takes a wife, this is the circumstances, and goes into her and then hates her and accuses her of misconduct and brings a bad name upon her, saying, I took this woman, that's saying, I had sex with this woman because we were married. And when I came near to her, I did not find her in evidence of virginity because on the wedding night, they had to put blankets down. And then this is the mum and dad's job. Just be grateful, parents, that you don't have to do this now. Let's put a blanket down. Then the father and the young woman and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of her virginity, goodness me, to the elders of the city in the gate. And the father of the young woman shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man to marry and he hates her. That's true. And behold, he is accused of misconduct, saying, I did not find in your daughter evidence of virginity. And yet this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity. She is showing a blood-soaked sheet at this point. It's pretty gross. And they shall spread the cloak before the elders of the city. So this is really dramatic. So it's a terrible situation for everybody. And they're saying, look, you just don't like our daughter, but here's the evidence. You're lying. You're saying she's not a virgin, but she is, because here's the evidence. Next slide. Then the elders of that city shall take the man because he's lying, and whip him, and they shall find him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman, that's not quite right, because he has brought a bad name upon a virgin of Israel, and she shall be his wife, and he may not divorce her all his days. Sounds harsh, but that's a huge jump forward in women's rights, because at the time, it was usually just, oh, I don't like this woman anymore, I'm just going to divorce her, and this part of the law says, no, you can't do that, you're married to her, that's it. You're going to look after her and she's not going to be destitute and she's going to stay in your house. And it's going to, this was like a big jump forward for women's rights. Next slide. But if the thing is true, so if the virgin is actually found not to be a virgin, 
that the evidence of virginity was not found in the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones, because she's done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. This is where Mary is. Evidence of non-virginity growing in her belly. Joseph should be doing this. Joseph should be taking her to her father's house, stoning her to death and purging the evil from within their community. That's what everybody expects Joseph to do. That's what he should be doing by the culture of the time. But he doesn't. What does it say? It says, As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. Is showing stunning and unexpected levels of grace and mercy towards Mary in this moment. He should be taking her to her dad's house and stoning her to death. And he says, I'm not going to do that. And we see something of the character of Joseph here, that this is a man of honor, that this is a man of grace, that this is a man of mercy, that he's not even going to divorce her loudly. He's going to do it quietly. He's trying to save Mary's reputation. He's trying to help her in the best way that he knows how in this moment. And even before the angel comes to him, we see this little glimpse of his character. And then the angel says... You know, I know what you're considering. Don't do that. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And the angel in this moment comes to Joseph and says, he reaffirms his standing because he says that he's from the tribe of David. So we know that for a Jewish person hearing this, they're like, okay, Joseph's legit. He's a legitimate person. He's in the tribe of David. The salvation history thread is there. Matthew says he's qualified. Luke also lets us know that Mary qualifies too, just interestingly. And the angel says to him, don't be afraid. Now that's not an uncommon thing to hear an angel say in the Bible. So if you've got in your head when I'm saying an angel appeared to Joseph, if you've got a cute little cherub with a harp, no. Because every time an angel appears to somebody in the Bible, they start with, don't be afraid, which means they're not cute and cuddly. They're like fearsome in every way because they often fall over. They like, they're like, don't be afraid. And they're like, Ooh. so don't think cute, cuddly cherubim. Think fearsome, angelic being. But this angel doesn't say don't be afraid because he's so awesome and uh, Joseph's going to be like, oh my goodness, an angel. He says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And I love this little part here because what the angel's doing is he's speaking directly to Joseph's heart, directly to the fears that Joseph has, directly to the problem that Joseph has, directly to the thing that he's turning over in his mind and he's thinking, what on earth do I do about this situation? How am I going to make this okay? How is this going to work out? How, how, how? And he speaks to that. 
He speaks to the thought of Joseph's heart. It's not like Joseph's got a blog that he can go and read. He's not got a Facebook group that he can, you know, virgins pregnant by the Holy Spirit. He can't go and check, well, what do you do in this situation? He can't go to his, his uh, priest. He can't, he, there's, there's no precedent for this. Joseph's literally on his own in this. He can't go and talk to somebody and talk it through and be like, well, what would you do in this situation? Because nobody's going to go, well, when I experienced this, here's what I did. Like, here's my five points to help you. He's on his own. He doesn't know what to do. He's, he's isolated. And God knows that and comes and speaks to his heart and says, I see, I know, I care. And here's the little piece of information that you need to unlock how this is going to work out well for you. It's a lonely journey for Joseph. We often forget that. It's a very lonely journey for Joseph and a massive risk for him as well. And Matthew sums up in this little bit where he says, don't, you know, he's doing the account of what the angel said. And the angel says, for he will save his people from their sins. And if we're going to distill the book of Matthew down again, we get it in one sentence. That's it. That's the point of Matthew, that he, Jesus, is going to save the Israel nation, is going to save the people who would come and bow the knee to Jesus from their sins. Now, we listen to that with our Western thinking. We think, wonderful, what good news for me. I can be saved from my sins. But a Jewish person never would have heard it like that. They would have heard it as a corporate thing. Great, we, collective, we can be saved from our sins because they have a collective problem. The Israel nation has been in exile. They disobeyed God. They broke the covenant. God said to them, if you'll do this, you will be my people and I will be your God. And they repeatedly, repeatedly over generations just turned their noses up at God and snubbed him. And so he gave them over to what they wanted. And now they're waiting. They're waiting for a deliverer. They're waiting for a savior. They're waiting for somebody to bring them out of exile and out of oppression and to restore the covenant. And there's all this expectation and hope and love. it's Jesus. Matthew speaks to the hearts and the desire that they have. And in verse 22, we get this little commentary from Matthew where he's now no longer telling us kind of word for word what happens. He's now telling us what he thinks about what's happening. And he says, all this took place, all that we've just read, took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Again, for somebody hearing this the first time, that's unexpected. It's left field. It's not at all how they pictured it. If we're going to have a little bingo card for a Jewish person to say, how is the Messiah going to come? They would not have put through Mary, through Joseph, in disgrace, pregnant by the Holy Spirit. They wouldn't, that was not on anybody's bingo card. And yet Matthew says, listen guys, it may not look how you thought it was going to look, but this is fulfilling everything that God has been working towards up to this point. Chapter 2, if you're going to go read that this week, which I encourage you to do, continues the story that you will know very well. Details of the wise men. Herod bringing an immediate threat to Jesus' life, killing all the baby boys that were around at the time, 
trying to destroy Jesus. That's mitigated by an angel appearing to Joseph again in a dream and saying, you need to go out to Egypt. And then again, another angel appearing to Joseph in a dream saying, it's all safe now. You need to come back and they return to Nazareth. And Matthew adds these little details. He adds in this fleeing to Egypt and coming back in. He adds in what the attempt was on Jesus' life by Herod because he's trying to get his listeners to hear and think, hang on, I know a story like this. This sounds familiar to me. This has happened before. This has happened before with somebody that we esteem and that we know, and that person is Moses. So Matthew's trying to draw these really two Two parallels between Jesus and Moses all the time. And if we look at it, there's a lot. So the two boys, Jesus and Moses, are born in a nation that's being oppressed. So Moses is born in Egypt. They're being oppressed by the Egyptian nation. Jesus is born in Israel at the time. They were being oppressed by the Roman occupation. They're both born and pretty much at their birth, an edict happens by the evil king. So this is Herod in Jesus's story, and it's Pharaoh in Moses's story. And they say, all right, let's kill all the baby boys. Let's kill them all. That happens in Moses's story. It happens in Jesus's story. This miraculous intervention to help them not be killed in both stories. There's divine intervention in both stories to preserve the life of the Savior. And there's this mirror that happens where Jesus has to flee into Egypt and is then brought out into his homeland. And that's mirroring Moses and then fleeing out of Egypt, being brought into their homeland. And all that's happening for his readers to go, this is the person you've been waiting for. You doesn't look at all like you expected. You didn't have it on your bingo card. It's not what you thought it was going to look like. But look, all the evidence is here. It's stacking up for you. So if you went back and you read Matthew 1 and 2, and maybe you read the accounts in Luke, with, the, with that sort of context, here's what you're going to see. We've had 400 years of silence since the last time that God spoke to the people of Israel. And then we get, bam, like straight into a genealogy. And we have angels appearing. The last time we saw an angel appearing to anybody was in Daniel. And the angel isn't just appearing to do amazing things. He's actually coming to do pregnancy announcements. It's like, <laughs> seen all these pregnancy announcements online where they're you know, doing all the little gender reveals and different things and you do a cute little pregnancy announcement. Well, an angel, that's a pretty, that's a pretty top trump way to announce your pregnancy. And the angels come and Mary and Joseph... They're in the right lineage, but nobody's expecting it to happen to them. There's a census happening, so there's like loads of upheaval happening at the same time. If we're going to put the Savior of the earth, or we're going to put the Savior of the earth onto the earth, would we choose a time of massive upheaval, or would we pick a time where it's kind of relatively peaceful and people don't have to move around too much and contend with like roving bands of robbers and different things like that? But it's not. Census is happening. There's miracle babies being born. Mary's cousin has uh, an angel appear to her and say uh, uh, to her husband Zechariah and tell them about their miracle son that's going to be born, Jesus' cousin. The wise men are in the story, completely unacceptable, unclean people who should not be in the story about the birth of Jesus at all. Shepherds are in there and they hear the news first. If we're going to announce the Savior of the world is coming and the Savior and the culmination of everything that you've been ever hoping for, would we not go to the priest system? Would we not go to the top of the people at the pile? 
But God turns the whole thing on its head and said, no, I'm going to go to smelly shepherds instead. And they're out in their fields. And it's this nice little nod to the fact that salvation history through the Old Testament happens through shepherds. Happens through Abraham, a shepherd. Isaac, a shepherd. Rachel, a shepherd. Moses, a shepherd. Aaron, a shepherd. David, a shepherd. This little thread that comes through. And we see him being born in a manger. Not hygienic at all, but there he is. And stars announcing the birth. And the poor, you know, when, we, when one angel appears to somebody and says, do not be afraid. These poor shepherds, a host of angels. The skies open, it says. The skies open and a host of angels appear to them. You would be like, what is happening? The sky is opening, a host of angels. So they all must have been, I think, be like, do not fear. And they were like, <laughs> like dying because the sky's just opened and like a host, not one, but a host of angels is there to them. Nobody in Israel had this set of circumstances on their bingo card for how the Savior and their long-awaited Messiah was going to come. Guarantee, as they're reading this account, as they're hearing this account, they are feeling surprised, confused. This isn't what I expected. This is left field. I feel uncomfortable. I'm intrigued. I'm puzzled. Maybe I'm even a bit let down as I'm hearing this. I don't think this is how this is going to go. And yet Matthew writes this in such a way that this is like a this is like a cliffhanger. If you had read a really good book where you get to the end of the chapter and then it's like, oh, I have to find on. I like have to read on, and then you find you get to the next chapter and they're just a really great author, and then they leave it on another cliffhanger and they're like, oh, I have to find out. Jack Reacher books are like that. You get to the end and you're like. I need to know. And then you find yourself at three o'clock in the morning going, how does it end? I have to drink all the coffee the next day. I've never done that, by the way. (laughs) But that's what Matthew's doing. He's writing this page turner where they get to the end of this bit and they're like, if this is the start, how on earth is this going to end? I'm feeling confused and puzzled and intrigued and I don't know what's going on. I'm unsettled. How is it going to end? And that's what Matthew wants you to feel as you're reading this. What kind of saviour is this? What kind of story is this? If this is the start, how is it going to come together? I wonder if the band could join me. And I want you to, as we land this, think about, well, how does this help me this week? Because I'm fairly sure I can, well, say with a good degree of certainty, most of us aren't going to have angels appear to us this week and tell us that the Savior is going to be born to us. We're not, you know, in shepherds and all that different things that we've heard about. But I wonder, this year, is there a situation in your life that, like Joseph, you've got the right to respond with judgment to? Maybe it's come with you into the new year. Maybe it's popped up for you in the new year. And you've got every right. It's within your rights It's reasonable, maybe it's even expected, that you would respond in a certain way. And yet, could you have the opportunity at the start of this year to respond instead with grace and mercy as a reflection of the grace and mercy that Jesus has shown you? Joseph had every right to go and stone Mary. Now, culturally, not great. Of course, we know that that's not okay. But at the time, that was his legal right. But he doesn't do that. He's not even intending to do that. 
So I wonder in your situation, maybe you've got the moral right, the ethical right, the employment right, the legal right. Maybe you've got the emotional right. Maybe it feels right to you to respond in a certain way. But could you instead choose grace and mercy? Could it be that the Holy Spirit this morning could be saying to you, let's choose a different way to deal with this. Maybe a way that you're not thinking about. Could that be how you apply that this week? Maybe like Joseph, and I felt this quite strongly for people in the room today, that there's a fear in your heart that maybe you've not even shared with another soul, but you've been turning it over in your mind. Maybe it's quite a unique problem. Maybe it's something that you actually can't go to somebody else and say, what would you do with this? Or you haven't, it's not been helpful. Maybe you've got a problem where you actually feel really isolated, where you think, I just, I just don't know what the way through this is. I don't know how to deal with this. And it's keeping you up at night. And you're turning it over in your mind, and it's there when you wake up, and it's there in the car, and your brain just keeps going back to it, and you're thinking, how is this going to work out? How am I going to make this right? Well, this morning, could you hear the voice of heaven speaking to you, saying, do not fear. Do not fear. Could you hear the voice of heaven saying to you this morning that God sees, God knows, and he cares. Joseph was isolated in this. Nobody could really help him but God. And maybe you feel like that this morning, that I, I, just, I just don't know what to do. and Nobody really understands, and I don't know how to get through this. Well, this morning, heaven says to you, do not fear. Jesus sees, Jesus knows, and he will offer a way out. He will help you out or through what you're going through. He knows what's coming. He knows how to get you through. And as we start this year and you look at the blank bingo card of your year, and we don't know what's coming, it'd be so nice if we did, wouldn't it? It'd be so nice if we could have a little card of what's going to come up in the year and be like, well, financial hardship's going to come, okay, check. But then we're going to get supernatural intervention, check. Or I can see that there's a health problem on the horizon, okay? But scripture's going to really help me to stand on the word and to get through that, check. Or I'm going to have a massive problem with my kids in school this year. But Jesus is going to give me a unique strategy to get get through that. So I might feel like I don't know what I'm doing, but he's going to be there, check. If we could, if heaven could give you the card of the year, it'd be so helpful, wouldn't it? If you knew what was coming and you knew that there was going to be a way to get through it. But they don't, do they? We don't get it all written down for us. We don't know in advance what's coming, but we do know that God is with us, that God sees, God knows, and He cares. And for every problem that's going to pop up on the bingo card of your year this year, there is a way out, there is a solution, there is a way through, there is comfort to come, there is strength to come, there is joy to come, there is a song to sing, there are words to proclaim, there is truth to get inside your soul, there's prayers to pray, there's anchors for your soul, there's truth that you can stand on to get you through this year. And I wonder, Instead of coming to the year, maybe with a bit of trepidation going, I just don't know how this year is going to go. Could we instead come to it 
with a fresh anticipation and an expectation that, well, I don't know, but Jesus knows. And that's enough for me. And if he saw me through last year and the year before and the year before that, then he's going to get me through this year and the year after and the year after that. And if he solved and he helped with the finances before, he's going to solve and help with the finances again. And if he's sustained me through sickness before, he's going to sustain me through sickness again. And if he's going to be with me then, then he's going to be with me now. Could we come to it with a little bit of a confidence that I may not know what's coming, but Jesus does. And he is more than enough for me. Would you stand with me this morning? I want you to close your eyes and just have a moment with you and Jesus. I know that for lots of us, we've come into the year and already we've been surprised. Already things haven't been as we've expected it to be. Already things have been left field and we feel confused and maybe even a bit let down. And it's like the years kind of just hit us straight in the face and we're like, oh my goodness, I just wasn't quite ready for it. And it just feels like it's going a thousand miles an hour. But I want you just now just to just stop and just breathe in the presence of God that God is with you, that he loves you, that he's for you, that he goes ahead of you, that he comes behind, that he surrounds you, that he is working things for your good because you love him, that he's got strength this year to give into your soul, that he's got songs of joy in the darkness of night to release to you, that he's got miracle finances to come through, that he's got new areas of trust for you to lean on him, that the circumstances that are going to come this year may not be how you expect them to be. If we were going to write them down, you wouldn't at all put them on the bingo card of your year. And yet, he will be with you. He goes before you. He is your rock. He is your strength. And Father, I pray that the truth of that settle into every heart and mind right now. That you know and you see and you're taking care of it. We put our trust in you this morning, Jesus. Not in our ability, not in our understanding, not in our strength, not in our clever thinking, not in our manipulation or scheming or trying to work things out and how it's going to work. But we put our trust in you the author and perfecter of our faith. And if that's you and that you just feel like that, yep, yeah, that's me, Jules, this morning, just have a chat to Jesus now and say, Jesus, I'm just going to leave it in your hands this year. And maybe you're in the room this morning and maybe you've not been to church for a long time or maybe you've never been to church and you're like, I need to know this Jesus. I need to know how the story ends. I need to know that he can be with me. I need to have somebody who's going to be in my life closer than a brother, a constant. Somebody to save me. Somebody to be with me. Somebody to uphold me. I want what it is that you've been talking about. And that's you this morning with every Christian praying in the room this morning.
and you want to say yes to this Jesus. You want to say yes to the person who risked it all to come to earth, to die a sinner's death for you, for me, to take all of our sin, to take the payment of sin that should have been ours and yet he took it upon himself. And maybe you don't have it all figured out. Maybe you don't know how it's all going to end. Maybe you don't really understand everything. But there's something inside your heart right now that says, I don't understand it all, but I want in. If that's you this morning, would you be really brave and lift up your hand as I look across the room and you want to say yes to Jesus. You want to say yes to walking with Jesus this year, to discovering who he is and what he can bring to your life. And as you bow your knee to him, that he can save your soul. As I look across the room this morning. Okay, Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We recognize it. We start our year with confident expectation. Confident expectation that you are good, that you know what's coming. You're preparing it all in advance for our good. And so we put this year into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.